All right. Welcome to the second season of the Learner Centered Collaborative Podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Star Saxteen, amazing educator turned consultant, international educator and thought partner. Uh, we're going to be talking today about her experience as a teacher, shifting from being the perfectionist to really thinking about how to create um, learning experiences for students and assessment practices that really shift the ownership in the classroom. Hi, I'm Katie Martin, and this is the Learner Centered Collaborative Podcast. I'm an author, mom, educator, and lifelong learner on a mission to create authentic, inclusive, and equitable learning experiences that puts learners at the center. At the Learner Centered Collaborative, we are guided by the persistent truth that a learner-centered approach is the foundation for a successful, thriving learning community. We are passionate about transforming visions for learning into actionable practices that positively impact learners and learning. During our time together, we'll explore challenges in education today, set ambitious goals for what is possible, and make space to celebrate the bright spots along the way. I'll share vetted practices and strategies that I hope will inform, inspire, and ignite your learner-centered journey. Together, we can empower all learners to actively engage in the world as their best selves. Let's get started. Welcome, Star. I've been following your blogs, reading your books, listening to your TED Talk this morning, and I'm just super excited to dive in. Thanks so much, Katie. I can't wait to talk about it too, like to talk to other people who geek out about this stuff. It's just awesome. It is. And I hope that those listening will enjoy us geeking out um, as much as I know that we will. Uh, so start off a little bit, if you can, and just tell us your story. Who, who are you as a person? What are the experiences that led you to be the educator and leader that you are today? Sure. So um, I've been in education now for 21 years, which is kind of crazy because I don't feel old enough to have been anywhere for 21 years. Yep. Um, but I have been. And I would say 16 at heart. It's really hard to imagine all of that. Well, what's crazy is you could see behind me, the listeners won't be able to, but my son is the senior in high school. And so like, I have a kiddo now that's almost an adult, which is crazy too. And he's a big part of my story. Like I started being an educator before he was born and very traditional. My first few years in the classroom, I'm sure most most people who go into this kind of start the way they've been taught. Mm -hmm. And I was in a very um, socioeconomic, like low socioeconomic school district in a high needs poverty school. And I had no idea what I was doing. I would say years zero to three. And I had very patient, loving students. The one thing that I did well was connect with the kids. Like even when my teaching chops weren't there yet, um, my commitment to them was at the forefront of everything that I was doing. And I was always looking for ways to get them to come to class because when you're teaching in the inner city in New York, attendance is an issue. So, you know, like finding ways to engage them the best ways I knew how in the beginning. Um, I would say there were elements of stuff that kind of grew out of that later, but 
my assessment and grading practices were largely what had been done to me. So, you know, it's a little embarrassing when I think back to those years because I was unrelenting with taking points off for everything. And even though I was trying to engage them in a lot of ways, I was also doing a lot of really stupid things that weren't very helpful and productive. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I moved into probably my my third school, which is the one I was at the longest, mm-hmm. that's when things really started to shift. Um, at that point, I had been really spending a lot of time with the Journalism Education Association. So like I had shifted into this journalism space and a lot of my classrooms were very student-centered because I was teaching newspaper and media classes that you know, by their very nature, you cannot teach them the traditional way. And if you want to have a publication that gets out, you have to kind of live in a project-based space where every kid is doing something different all the time. And I really loved that. I loved the kids I worked with. I loved the program I was creating. And every single time I kind of stepped in another direction, it was like, well, where else can I not be in control of things and how else can I get kids involved? And by the time my, by the time I left the classroom, the kids were co-constructing curriculum with me. They were designing assessments. They were really an integral part of not only the learning they were doing, but also how they were doing the learning. And, you know, that there was a wide arc there, but, um, I'm super proud of the teacher I became so that when I kind of moved into that instructional coach role and then into my leadership role before I came to where I am now, I was excited to work with teachers and kind of be the leader I always wanted. I had a couple of good ones along the way, but I would say I was a little much for most of my my leaders. Um, They either didn't know what to do with me or just didn't want to get in my way when they recognized that I was kind of on a roll and doing things with kids that they didn't necessarily understand, but could see were, you know, it was working. Yeah. And sometimes that's all they need to do is just don't, you know, don't get in your way. But as you're talking, it reminded me of um, Esther Wojcicki in her classroom. I'm sure like the journalism and you know, talking about both what's good for kids at home, but also in the classroom, just, you know, in your question, what, what can I like get out of the way and what can they do more of, mm-hmm. I think is um, something that more of us would benefit from asking um, more regularly. I think it took a really long time for me to feel confident as a teacher to be able to say that my way isn't the only way that's right. Um, or that my students had something valuable to offer, or am I comfortable knowing that if they ask me a question I can't answer, that I was okay with that? Like, all right, well, let's problem solve together. It took some time to get to that point, because when I came in, you had mentioned, you know, my recovering perfectionist thing. The first five years that I was teaching, I was absolutely terrified of not having the right answer if a kid asked me, because I somehow believed teachers had to have all the answers. If I was going to be teaching a book I had never taught before, I did tons of research on what scholars said everything meant so that if I was going to pull a passage out to teach in class that I knew, I knew what it really meant, but it, 
I wasn't even trusting myself enough. I was doing tons of research. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in what you just said, but the perfectionist really comes from the lack of confidence, Mm -hmm. right? I don't exactly know what I'm doing. I'm not confident that I can get kids to that next level or that I can engage them in conversation. So we have to keep such tight boundaries on what we're teaching and what we're talking about so that it doesn't go outside of what I know and I feel very comfortable saying because I have the script or I have the lesson plan. But I mean, I came into this, my mom always used to say, um, you'll just, you'll learn it when you teach it, Katie, because I was not quite the perfectionist student that you were, but she was like, I know when you're teaching it that you'll be more motivated to learn something. And it was so true. But if, but that's, if we let our kids do that, to really be the learners and know that like, I don't have the right answer to this. It is a more project-based open-ended space. Then the learning is so much more powerful for everybody involved. Yeah. And so much, I mean, the flip side of that too, is for any listener who's a high school English teacher, for example, if you're assigning one essay that has one prompt with really only one or two ways you could answer it, like, yeah, it might be easier on us because there's less to know, but it's also boring as hell to read, you know, 60, 70, 80 essays that are identical to each other versus, you know, being okay with teaching kids to take risks and letting them choose the books that they're reading, even if you haven't read them yourself. So you don't know if what they're saying is 100% right, but you know, yeah, it's it's just so much better. And not even that it's boring. I mean, that's a huge piece. It's boring to read, but it is totally limiting any creativity, any expertise, any interest in students. And they're probably not putting much into it if they're all just following the same formula. And it reminds me, I was just with a group of um, third grade teachers last week, and they were teaching their kids to write, step up to writing, you know, the very like, formulaic, which you need to know some basics. I get it. But they were like, we're just going step by step and they're copying because, you know, this is the paragraph one, two, and three, because they don't know how to do it on their own. Right. And just that very like idea, of course, they don't know it. They've never had the opportunity to practice on their own and get feedback. Instead, it's follow this formula, copy it. I'll give, I'll check it that you did it but there's no indication that they're able to do it on their own. And that's why they get to you in high school and people are like, these kids can't write. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, honestly, those formulas, like I get it, especially with kiddos with language barriers and a lot of other things like structure, like formulas are really, really good to start. Yeah. But we need to transition those formulas out a lot sooner than we do. Like it shouldn't just be in 11th grade English that I'm the first person saying to them, you know, 11th or 12th grade English, like you really shouldn't be doing this five paragraph essay thing anymore. And then when they go, well, how long does it have to be? As long as it needs to be to actually prove your point and a paragraph doesn't need to be five sentences and all of these crazy things that we teach them early on when they're learning these structures because undoing what they've learned for so long is, is almost more challenging than getting them to develop a voice of their own by the time they get to like later schooling. 
Right. Cause it's been, it's been silenced in many cases so that you could, you could, you know, fit in the formula, but I think a big piece of this too, and I am so guilty of this as an educator, so I'm not knocking it. And I, but I came later in life to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, most educators don't write. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you are a, a prime example of like, you wrote, you blogged, you were doing all this as an educator and mm-hmm. I'm sure it came into your practice but most educators don't write. And so we're afraid of it ourselves and we don't know how to break the formula, right? Yep. We don't know how to break the mold. We are only going by, this is a five paragraph essay. And the idea that like, we actually don't write like this or use this in many cases um, is a hard thing for educators to teach when they're not confident, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Ironically, writing is one of the areas where I do feel pretty confident, like all of us have our superpowers, like writing happens to be something that is usually, I mean, I'm working on a book right now, I'm a little bit in procrastination mode, but like, usually I could sit down and write pretty, pretty well from the get. And I think because I was blogging all that time, I was in the classroom with the kids, I had a a level of credibility street cred with the kids that when I was saying, hey, this is what you need to be doing. I wasn't just saying it from the standpoint of a teacher, but as a published author. And I wasn't afraid to share with them what my drafts look like, how my editors may have ripped things apart, the kind of feedback that I was getting. I even brought out from the archives stuff that I wrote in high school and like how mortified I was to look at it later at that point, because my my kiddos, I mostly taught 12th grade by the time I was done in the classroom. So my kiddos were on the way into high, you know, into college. And I'm like, you'll look back on all of this stuff too, and you'll be proud of it, but you'll also kind of cringe a little bit as soon as you see some of the stuff that you're doing right now, even though it's the best stuff. I still feel that way about some of the books I've written. You know, when I think about how much has changed and I just recently did a second edition of Hacking Assessment and- Congratulations. Thank you. Revising that. Like at first I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. I only need to change one, you know, change things here and there, fine tune it. The book is almost double the size of the first one. And my thinking on so many things have changed that it was almost a complete rewrite. So like just thinking about how we evolve as people and thinkers and learners um, and helping kids understand that- that's a part of the evolution process as a learner. Like you're, you're doing the best you can for right now, but when you look at it later, you're going to see that you've grown so much more too. Yeah. So let's take an example because I want to bring this concrete. This is a, sure. an example I've experienced kind of recently um, and goes back to the writing or how in like any assignment, right? My husband's a high school chemistry teacher. So there's like, you know, the scientific process you're revising. Um, but so there's a teacher that I was working with and he said, well, I have 150 kids. I'm assigning an essay. I can't give them feedback and I can't have them do redos. I have 150 students. Like it's impossible. And right. So like you're cringing, um, same. And so by the very nature what you just said about being a published author, my experience too, my first drafts of my books are horrible, right? They start as blogs. I put stuff together. It's like the best I have at the moment. And then they're molded and shaped by editors and authors and copy or, you know, copy editors. And there's a lot of revision and feedback I get. But if I just 
put out my first draft and and where it was done, it would never be as good as it gets, right? So sure. when kids are learning in school right now that I do an essay, I just have to do my best as a 13-year-old or whatever it is, I turn it in and I get a grade. One, it's I'm smart or not because of what I just happened to put on paper. Um, and then they don't get the feedback too. So the second part of it, they don't know how to improve. So the next time around, they're just putting the same thing back on paper. So let's go back to if this was your classroom in this or your coaching teachers, mm -hmm. how do we redesign this experience so that it's sustainable for teachers, it's impactful for kids, and we actually get to create really good writers or learners in any context. So like the first thing that I, I always say to teachers and leaders now too, you have to slow down to go fast. Everybody's always so worried about covering curriculum and they can't take the extra day to do the workshop or to get kids the feedback that they need. Mm -hmm. To that teacher in, in New York City public schools, my, my classes were capped at 34 students. I had five student, you know, five classes at least. So I had at least 170 students any given year in my classes. Um, I taught AP English. So the amount of writing they were doing was exhaustive. And I had to, like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to assign an, a piece of writing unless it's going to go through a whole process. So if the kids are going to do it, they are going to get the feedback from me because that's where the real learning happens. That's where the differentiation happens. That's where you have this amazing one-to-one -one opportunity to really give kids exactly what they need. So when you said, how do we restructure classrooms, the formative assessment process, not formative assessment, but like the process of doing all of these things is, is how we do that. Running a classroom where you have that clarity, you have your learning targets, you're co-constructing success criteria, and then you're giving kids um, maybe five minutes of a mini lesson direct instruction, but then you're letting them practice, practice, practice. As they're practicing, you're getting eyes on what they're doing right away. I used to have my students share their documents with me the second that they started writing so that even if I'm not over their shoulder, I could be at my computer in the Google Doc with every single one of them. And that could also flag to me who are the kids who need me most when they start writing. Um, and then as they draft, because you also don't want to get too much in their way while they're drafting right away, because then it'll become your writing. But you know, knowing your kiddos and then having some kind of workshop practice that's happening where the writing isn't just about the summative, show me what you know, but it it becomes a process to the kids as well, where you're not only demonstrating the things that you know about what you're writing about, you're also demonstrating how you write. And that process and reflection and getting really good peer feedback structures in place so that you're not the only person giving feedback. Um, you're modeling what that looks like. And then with technology, the way that it is, I mean, we have all of these opportunities to make giving feedback easier. I used to use Voxer with my students and now there are voice, um, you could do voice comments on Google Docs with extensions. You could use Flipgrid if you wanna use video because you know, like you said, writing is, is not an easy thing for a lot of kids. So 
I always had a hard time like giving constructive feedback, especially if there was a need for a lot of constructive feedback. Like I wanted them to hear my voice to kind of soften the blow instead of just having me mark everything up. I also got much better at choosing how much constructive feedback I gave them at any given point so that um, you prioritize it. What are the most pressing things that need fix? And then sort of not worry about some of the granular stuff that could get fixed later. And, you know, like letting kids absorb and, and revise before you start, you know, telling them all the words that are spelled wrong or the grammatical challenges that are making it difficult to really get their point across. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big thing. And it goes back to, I typically see, I've experienced as a student, as a parent and in classrooms that what typically gets graded regardless of the essay is the grammar, right? That's the glaring thing. No, it's like, regardless of structure, you like write this beautiful essay or not. And it's like, there's not a period here. Your syntax is off. You didn't start with, you know, the right tense. Um, And all of those things do matter at the end, right? So I think that we stifle so much of kids as learners in the process by like nitpicking at these things that you said, look, pull it up on Grammarly, use some other tools that can, can, that can help facilitate the grammar issues, the structure, but it's the ideas of the individual that are actually going to make the piece of writing or whatever we do much more worthwhile. Yeah. I, I think that that's the other thing too, with, with what we value. And this was always a challenge I had with my colleagues. Like if you have one colleague the year before that a student was in a class where they're getting graded on a first draft for no freaking, like I still really don't understand this first draft grading um, and doing it out of a hundred for a paragraph, like without a rubric, I, I don't understand, but like it happens. It still it happens. happens so much. It, it does. Just, and it's, it, yes, it happens so much. And that's what kids think. I'm not good at writing. Yep. And I would always say to kids too in my class, you are the author of this piece. I am giving you feedback as a reader. Um, you do not have to make the changes I tell you to make. This is just me telling you, especially if it's a clarity issue or something like that. As a reader, I don't understand what's going on here. So I don't want to prescribe the right way for you to correct this. What I want to do is have a conversation with you about what you've communicated to me and whether or not that's what you wanted to communicate. And then we could talk about a few ways that you could shift it if you agree with me, but that wasn't your intention. So I was always really intentional about not taking ownership away from them in their writing. And I also always kind of espouse this, we are all writers, we are all readers, and your writing doesn't need to look like mine for it to be worthy of being read. So, you know, like that took a while too, for me to be really comfortable saying like, my way isn't the only right way to do this. It's reminding me of my son. He had this amazing um, teacher in third and fourth grade. And he goes, mom, uh, I really, I don't like writing, but I love writing. Right. What he meant is he doesn't like writing He's, right. you know, he has trouble like penmanship and the, the writing process is arduous and he doesn't like just being graded on what he puts on a paper, but he loves the act of 
thinking about the story, putting the pieces together. And, and he often dictates when he's writing something. Um, and that to, is how he could put it together. And then he'll go back and edit. But for him, that works really well. But if a teacher doesn't allow him to leverage those tools and do it in his way, they're going to get a two sentence um, piece that they're like, oh, this isn't this isn't right. You get a D or an F. Right. Yeah, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. Just yeah. like people who say that listening to audiobooks isn't reading. Like, you know, th- there are blind people in the world who can't read the way that you and I can. So like, I don't understand why listening to a book is any less valuable than actually reading it with your eyes. Yeah, um, I love Audible. Like, Audible podcast, like I'll get in the car and it's often the only time I finish a book from beginning to end because yep. I'm sitting, it's making me focused on a long drive and I can just take it in. And some people don't, don't absorb it as much, but for me, it works, it works really well. And so, yeah, different auditory learners unite on the same exact way. Like if I really love a book I listen to, I will buy the hard copy after the fact, just so that I have it and can go back to it. And the specific parts I might've highlighted in the audio book and just to be able to have it, to share it with other people or whatnot, but you got to have it for the shelf. You got (laughs) it. I have so many shelves. It's like frightening. <laughs> I know. All right. So I want to kind of go back to um, something we talked a lot of, a little bit about earlier, uh, your TED talk and kind of your opening, right? You talk about being a perfectionist, being the kid who got the A's and that defined you. Sure. Uh, and it was, rem- it reminded me, so like my opening of my like TEDx talk was the exact opposite, right? I was the kid comparing myself to you. I was the kid in third grade. who was like, I don't want to read this book. It's boring. I don't want to read the mouse and the motorcycle and just answer, you know, multiple choice questions. I didn't like being told what to do. I would have thrived in your classroom, probably in your later years. Mm-hmm. Um, but despite com- be coming from two perspectives of the perfectionist, I got the A and that drove me to, I didn't get the A and that drove me the other way. We both came to this kind of stance around standardized tests are not meeting the needs of any of our learners, right? A very narrow road. And I was reminded again this morning of this um, poet, I forget her name, but there was an article that she, her poem was used in a standardized test in Texas. And she was reading the poem. And the question was, why did the author choose to break up this stanza and it was like a b c or d right she was reading it and she goes i can't answer the question right it was broken up that way because of formatting and it wouldn't fit on the same line right is what she says but they made up that she was trying to like depict something so anyway she's like looking at this the test takers make up the answer to her own question she can't answer questions and yet we're so wrapped around what this means for learners and, and so, of course, you know, the, we don't want to focus on standardized tests. We want to create more learner-centered experiences, um, but kids are being judged on this. So you wrote this in a blog, po- um, blog post, so I want to read it, and then we can talk about um, what we do instead. Mm-hmm. So you said, it's because of this that I abandoned testing a long time ago in exchange for a long-term projects that require students to show many different skills at once. Because the completion of the assignments take about a month, each child can show proficiency or mastery of many different skills over the course of the process. In this way, students have the best opportunity to give all of 
give their all and show what they've learned over the course of the year. So this is big. And you taught in New York, Mm -hmm. regents exams, public school, right? Everyone's like, it can't be done. This is the system. So how did you, like you said, not all administrators, like, you know, know what to do with you, but for, for a lot of educators who are thinking, I can't do it. I'm in the system. This is just where I am. What advice, what suggestions do you have for them to do it differently within a system? Well, I mean, I think if you have to, if the test is there, I'm not going to tell you to ignore that it's there because obviously so many of us are, you know, it's tied to our evaluations in a lot of different ways. Um, I don't personally believe that that's an awesome thing to do, but it is unfortunately what it's done. Um, I would say that if you could be intimately knowledgeable of the specific skills, any given test is, is expecting kids to demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And again, we're not talking about how well made these tests are, but we are talking about the specific content and skills that kids have to be able to do. I think there are ways to really craft a classroom where they're, they're getting real world opportunities to practice those skills, really have their own inquiry around the specific content that they need to be learning. And then as an sort of like an extra after you've created these learning experiences in your classroom, I'm not saying don't offer a lunch, a lunch and learn so that they could practice timing. And because, you know, that's a whole other thing, like test taking stamina and understanding how to read questions. And like, those are skills that are important and, and they, they will definitely come up in their lives at different points in time. So I think that there is a place for it, but not all year long. It's like two weeks before the test, you say, okay, now we've done all this learning and we've run, we've read a bunch of books and you've done a bunch of writing. Now we're going to practice the very specific skills of taking this test and how everything you've done so far applies to what's going on this test. But we're not going to waste all year stressing you out about something that's going to happen once at the end of the year. We're going to, you know, go about learning in an organic and sort of thoughtful way where you could totally engage and indulge your interest while we're going through these different processes. And at the end of the day, you'll have an opportunity to apply those in the specific way the state wants you to do it. Um, but I always try to discourage the teams that I work with to teaching to the test. And when I talk to them about formative assessment and, you know, what do your summatives look like and what do your formatives look like? And they tell me over and over, well, we just quiz using tests. I'm like, okay, well, let's think about that for a second. I have to like bite my tongue and not say what I'm thinking in those moments, but it's like, let's really unpack that. Do you find it's, Aside from how well the scores go up for these kids, do you find that they're engaged, that they're getting the material? Are they remembering it after you do these quizzes? Like what other things are you doing to get them to make the connections so they don't they don't forget? And robust project experiences make the learning memorable. So yeah. when they're doing the learning in that setting, they don't forget. Um, I have one video that I really like to show where it's one of my end of year assessment conferences with one of my seniors. And 
I did this with any, like by the end of the year, the students got to choose how they demonstrated their knowledge because we were a portfolio-based program. And so they had to demonstrate their learning using their portfolio. Some students were still doing student-led conferences with me. Some did podcasts, some did um, screen, you know, screencasts, some yeah. did videos, however they wanted to demonstrate their learning. And basically in that conversation, she's able to talk to you about her learning in September without prompting all the way through the end of the year. And she remembered the projects and what they were doing and who was in her groups and what those projects were about. And there are some days I ask my 17 year old, you know, what was that test even on? And he can't tell me. He doesn't know what that score was about or what the topic was. But I had students who could tell you what they were learning in September, in June. Um, and I attribute that really to the opportunity to do it in a fun and interesting way instead yeah. of just killing, you know, drill and kill and then test, 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 test. And the ownership that you talked about. And as you're talking through this, there's some key things that that really stand out. Um, it's the ownership, right? Who Who's doing the learning? That's the piece. It's in a project-based but the the piece around standardized testing, it is a genre, right? It is, it should, and I think the way you're saying, it, like we're not ignoring it. And I, I just want to say sometimes people are like, oh, learner-centered or project-based, everyone just does what they want. That's not at all what you're saying is, is working. It's like there are clear skills. And as an educator, rather than telling the kids what to do or dragging them through the process or the drill and kill, it's I gotta get really clear on these skills and then personalize my classroom so that they can get there, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. it's the, the mastery that you're talking about that they're demonstrating what they know and then there's gaps. And if they don't, I'm assuming there's peers that can help, there's mm -hmm. resources, or you can come up in conference with them. And it reminds me too, like this is in a high school classroom, the same thing. One of my best friends who taught in a sixth grade classroom, she did the same thing, but it was when, when she felt confident as an educator, she could move aside the script and say, these are the skills my kids need to have. And I'm going to allow them to engage in ways where there's inquiry, there's projects, they're questioning. And guess what? Yeah, you also have to know how to take a test, take all these skills as students, they're more confident. It's not going to define you. This test isn't going to define you. But if you can, you, you know, I'm confident in you and the skills that you have, show what you know. Right. Right. And that flips it from everyone's on, you know, lacks confidence and everyone's just going through. And the formatives that you talked about is a whole nother conversation. But the <laughs> zillion dollar industry that has made money off of testing kids on a test to test them on a test to show what they know. And then we say kids don't know anything. They're disengaged in low level content and material that are just like filling in bubbles. So I don't think that that's actually, you know, what we should be focusing on. So we could go, that's a whole other thing that we could go off on. Well, I mean, to that end too, like when I think about the last major project I did at the school, I was the, at the longest, I think I had mentioned earlier, like my students were co-designing co with me assessments. So like I taught Hamlet 
for years and years and years in my 12th grade class. And I always did it a very similar way. Once I found something that worked, it was like, okay, we're going to do it like this. And this is the time frame that we're going to do it in. And one year I was just like, listen, I had them set up in groups. I put copy of the whole unit on each one of the desks. And I said, this year, I want to do it differently. As a group, I want you to look at the objectives of this unit, the things I've done before, and I want you to come up with something better. Knowing these are the things we need to hit, and these are the different learning experiences you've had in class thus far, you know, and then what we'll do is we'll vote on all the ones you come up with, and we'll, that's, you know, then me and that group will design a project together, and that's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And if you can't come up with anything else, that's cool, too. You could default to what is already there. Um, we ended up having, like, four solid ideas, um, and we ended up with this crazy project on psychoanalyzing this year I had that particular year I had students who were like really into the psychoanalysis aspect of characterization they're like you know we're going to psychoanalyze a character in Hamlet we're going to do research and we're going to diagnose them with a with some kind of neuroses and then once we have the neuroses we're going to create a treatment plan for them and then we're going to make a movie that shows how they have been treated through this problem, starting with mining the text to figure out what they're like. First, we're going to do some text work to get some really rich characterization and then take what we learned from that characterization and do this research on neuroses so that there was, you know, a close reading aspect of it. There was a research aspect of it. Then there was storyboarding and then there was collaboration and then there was this crazy movie that they had to make at the end. And we created this like um, assessment form where after, because we, we ended up screening all the movies and then the kids had to fill out a Google form after where they talked about different things that they learned and gave feedback to the individual groups. So start to finish, um, it was completely student generated. Like these girls sat down with me, we kind of hashed it out, we figured out a timeline and then the work that they did was absolutely phenomenal. I couldn't have done it better myself if I wanted to. <laughs> right. I, and that's, yeah, bringing people in in all levels. But again, to emphasize, because some people get this idea that, well, I can't do that because I have things I have to teach, right? That sounds fun. That sounds great. But what I hear you saying is there were clear skills that you were teaching you yep. had outcomes and you just redesigned the time students were invested, but they were doing close reading. So they were learning to read text, intense critical text. They were looking for supporting details. They were pulling together arguments, um, defending their perspective, all of these skills that we want students to have. And people say like, it's not standards that are bad. It is like, the approach often that we use to get there, the curriculum that is standardized to get to that skill, those, like, I look at a list of standards and very rarely am I like, oh no, that's not necessary, right? But it is the approach of how we get there. And what you're saying is like, and each year, depending on your kid's interests, that project could vary based 100%. on what they're, what's motivating them. Mm -hmm. um, but that sounds like really cool and way more work than doing a packet and sitting oh there God. listening, right? So like I was a literacy coach and um, after leaving my seventh and eighth grade English classroom, and I remember going to each of the classrooms and 
every teacher had the record or the like cassette player that's, you know, playing Mm -hmm. and they would play the outsiders or whatever book that they were teaching. And kids were like hoodies on heads (laughs) to the side and they were listening to the stories and then having to answer questions. Well, when it comes to it, they couldn't read on their own. They couldn't find information because they'd never been made to actually do the deep work. We were just very high level skimming. And it was no wonder that the kids weren't performing well. They were disengaged. They weren't developing the skills. And by flipping it, you are not only going deeper, but you're actually developing those skills and the assessment piece, right? What did you learn? How do you know? And how are you going to show it? Sure. And I mean, that wasn't even like the one that ended up getting like I never graded group assignments. The group assignments were always like formative opportunities for them to explore the skills. So like by the time they were writing, we did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead right afterwards. So we learned about absurdist theater and then they had to actually write a one act play either in Shakespearean style or in absurdist style. So that was their demonstration of knowing at the end that they understood themes, diction, um, and then the style that they decided to work through. So I'm always a big fan of creation in terms, you know, synthesis and creation for to show real deep learning as opposed to, you know, just regurgitate what I told you in class. Yeah. And I love that you said I don't grade group projects because I think that gets a lot of like they didn't do the work. Yeah. So the group project is where you're learning and but there has to be some accountability and individual level of demonstration. And that's a part that we miss in the assessment also. Mm -hmm. I want to go back. So we talked about feedback. Feedback takes a lot of time, right? Feedback Mm -hmm. is deeply personal, important. And a conception I had early on, and these teachers, when we're, you know, redesigning this learning experience, it's kids do the work or I talk through class. I tell them all the things, they write something at home, and then I go home and grade 150 to 200 papers, right? Everybody's mad. The kids are mad because they have to do the work at home and they have, you know, my kids tell me all the time, I have a life too. Does no one understand that I have a life and things to do outside of school, which I totally respect. Mm -hmm. And then teachers are upset because they're working beyond the rules and they're, they're doing all this work at home. So how do we take feedback as a critical piece of this grade list more mastery based piece sure and bring it into the classroom or are you still bringing home 150 essays and grading them at home and then just handing them back nope never actually um the assessment part was actually an integral part of the process so like while that was all going on in class um whether it was individual like small group sort of conferring when i was working with them. I also had developed like through my work in journalism, you know, that you have different sections and in those sections, there's a specific way that you write. And I had student leaders who were able to give feedback in the specific way that needed to be done in each of those sections. So I was like, if it works in journalism, it could work in a regular English class too. We're going to create expert groups so that I trained maybe five different groups in class always. So we had our introduction group, we had a group on cohesion, one on development and evidence, one on organization, one on conclusions, right? So they're all trained in their very specific ways. Mm -hmm. And then we workshop 
the paper gets shared with whatever group you need support on in that particular way. And then as the year goes on, I know that, you know, um, Rita in, in that group, she's really awesome about giving feedback on this. So if I need help on this, I know Rita's going to be the person I go to. And this person over here, um, Billy is really awesome with giving feedback on whether or not I picked good evidence. And so that's the person I'm going to go to, to make sure it aligns with the claim I'm trying to prove and whatnot. And what I'm, I was doing always in the midst of that was, giving that very specific feedback. Plus kids were never allowed to come up to me and say, is this good? <laughs> that was another conversation that we actually had quite a lot. I said, I will not answer you. There are 34 people in this class. That paper is seven to 10 pages long. You have to have a very specific question about what you want help with that I could answer in one minute or less right now, or you have to set up a conference with me outside of class so that we could really go deeper. Um, and it's not that I didn't want to help them. I just didn't think any one kid should monopolize my time in a class where you have that many kids. So they had to learn to use precision of language. What is it that you are actually asking right now? Mm -hmm. So there was a huge advocacy piece here too. And that was a part of bringing standards language into the learning targets, making sure that they knew the specifics of the pieces of writing they were working on so they could articulate a question that was going to get them the answer that they wanted and not just something like, is this good as like, I mean, we could pontificate on what that actually means for a million years, because who am I to tell you if something's good or not anyway? So thinking really like, do you want me to evaluate whether or not you have a good thesis? Do you have enough context? Are your you know, are the pieces of evidence you've selected supporting whatever you're trying to prove? Is the development enough? You got to give me a little, a little bit to work with before you walk up to me and ask me what, what it is you want feedback on. So the key here, feedback is part of the process, right? 100%. Do all the work and then I'm going to give you a grade and we're going to move on is really right. getting to part of the process integral. And so you know what they know. You are clear, you're demonstrating it, and you're yeah. helping them to improve along the way. Um, and then that translates. So that translates to a grade, right? Is that eventually you have to put in a grade? So yes, yes and no. Like I okay. didn't actually put in grades in the traditional sense for individual assessments. They There were standards aligned or competency aligned sort of evaluation of mastery levels and then the grade that went on the report card was co-constructed with the student in a conference. So like there weren't any like actual 80s or A's or anything that went in my dashboard. Okay. I want to <laughs> dive into that. I'm like, oh my gosh, we need that. We need so much more time because I have so many more <laughs> questions. But this is a critical piece, right? Because we are trained to think that every piece needs a grade when we have hundreds of grades. And sometimes there's... Um, policy in schools and districts around like you need x amount of grades sure. and I think we confuse grades with feedback mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact I know we confuse grades with feedback so what I'm hearing is like you are very intentional about learning feedback constantly and there are clear competencies that students have to have to master those are the skills that are in the standards those are the things that you are held accountable to as a teacher Mm -hmm. um, 
And so those aren't going by the wayside, right? Just because you don't have 150 grades in your grade book, you're tracking, you're making sure that they have these skills mastered. It might be at different points in time, but they're showing evidence. And then based on that level of mastery, you are having a conversation about the final grade, which in many cases is all that goes in the grade book. So when we have this misconception that we are so held accountable to grades, A, B, C, D, whatever it may be, at the end of the day, it is that one grade and all that you've done is mastery learner-centered practices, but the grade is play, not like playing the game, whatever it is, but it's actually more evidence of what the students knows than an average of what they've done all year. I can't even get started on why averages are bad for learning, but like the, the fact of the matter is it, there are so many, when you make a classroom that has that like formative assessment process at the heart of it and clarity is really a big piece of that so that kids could speak to what they're learning, why they're learning and what they need to be doing next. They're setting their own goals. They kind of have all these things happening at once. Um, it makes it a lot easier to assess them that way also, because then they know very specifically, what do I do well? Where do I need to work? What's the next goal I need to set? And the next question is always, how did parents deal with that? Parents got so much more information from my dashboard than they got from other people's that no one complained. Because if they needed to know how, I, you know, my, my, Blanket statement to all of them on parent-teacher night is you're going to get so much information about what your kid knows that you're not even going to miss the grade. Right. It's like, that's all I want to know from my kids' teachers. How are they doing? Like, what, what do they need to work on? What are they doing well? And then, you know, one, two, three, or four, A, B, C, D, none of that tells me any of that. that so, yeah. So we could go, we might come back to this in another in time. Um, I do want to switch gears a little bit because we were talking earlier about you being a national um, board certified teacher, which is amazing. And so I would love to hear your perspective because, you know, you said this earlier, what we create or what we experience informs what we create. And if you don't see something different, it's hard to do something different. So going through this process, you experience something different that informed your work as a teacher. Can you share a little bit about that process sure. and how it shifted your perspective? So if you're even considering national board certification, I say do it, even though they've changed the process since I've done it. Um, there, It's so deeply reflective where you have this opportunity. I had to record myself like unedited video and then like watching the game day tapes, so to speak, and like analyzing myself. I learned so much about myself that none, none of my leaders ever picked up on. I had a huge wait time issue. Like that's probably the most salient thing I could probably tell you I learned about myself watching those videos. I was asking the same question probably about two to six times. Um, and then when people didn't answer fast enough, I was answering my own questions. Um, I would then go back again and do a second round. And my kids were smart. They knew I was going to answer myself. So half of them didn't even bother to try to go in. So like, I didn't recognize that about myself as a teacher until I saw it and was actually like absolutely mortified. I was like, oh my God, I just 
asked the same question literally six different ways. I gave them maybe three seconds to answer any one of them, but that three seconds felt like a freaking eternity. So it was like, well, maybe they just don't understand what I asked. So I'm going to ask again, and then I'm going to ask again, and then I'm going to answer it when nobody, like, and literally that was all in a span of maybe 25 seconds. I, it's baffling. And so like that whole experience of like really thinking and being intentional about myself as an educator, and then thinking about the robust reflection piece that went in, like, why did I make the choices that I did? What happened because of the specific intentional moves I made? What could I do differently? I was like, you know what? This was so powerful. I want to bring reflection into my classroom, this metacognitive process, like make it an integral part of, you know, what, what we do in here. And those reflection pieces became really the centerpiece of learning because before I would look at any kid's work, I would always read their reflection first. So I had a really solid understanding of what their goals were, what strategies they tried, what worked, what didn't work, what they were proud of. And then when I went in to read their work, I was doing it through their lens instead of my own. So if I had created an assessment or a project and I thought it was super clear, but I got 30 different versions of something that didn't even remotely look like what I had hoped, I also learned myself about the clarity I did or did not have. And I was then able to assess them through the lens of what they thought they had to do instead of what I told them to do. And that in itself was like one of the biggest game changers um, in, in how I looked at student learning at that time. Yeah. The teacher clarity piece is, is so powerful. And I, you know, often I'm like, here's the rubric or here's the assignment and you get things back and you're like, that doesn't actually jive with what, or, you know, and like, that's a, that's a moment as an educator to say, I have room to grow. Right. And in, instead penalize students because of your lack of clarity, there's an opportunity to say, okay, how do we come back together? Yep. So um, awesome. I think that national board, there's a lot of opportunities. The more that we can, even if you're not going to do national boards, the more we can be reflective and teacher leader journeys. Those are some of my most powerful experiences where I've had to go and test something out, bring back evidence. Um, we talk about data and evidence all the time in education, but really don't often use it to inform next steps in ways like you're talking about. Like, mm -hmm. how does this really impact my practice? So before we get to rapid fire, I have one more thing that we were talking about that's come up a lot. Um, and I think will be continually part of conversations, but um, AI, Yep. which, you know, I was like, you know, that's, that's somewhere else. That's, that's in the tech world. That's this, but, but really with the um, chat GPT three and all of that, there's, there's a lot that is going to come into our classrooms, whether we want to or not. So I'm thinking about like, as a seventh grade teacher, if kids were using this, how might I leverage it instead of trying to block it? So I'm curious, what are your perspectives on um, all these new AI features and how we could or should leverage them in the classroom? You know, I, I've been reading about it too. And I, I think, first of all, that 
it's crazy that you're, we are now at a point in technology where AI can write something that sounds human. Yeah. The way that it looked 10 years ago or five years ago, you knew right away that something non-human put this together. Like there was no voice. There was none of these things that could make the writing actually like readable beyond just, you know, quick informational sort of stuff. And so I'm thinking that if I were in the classroom now, and this is something that I was worried about, I would almost want to create something like that myself, use exemplars, and then talk to kids about what aspects of the writing, you know, like it's an opportunity, I think, for voice more than anything, having a conversation about how you develop voice and what's authentic to you and whether or not what is being produced by this AI actually represents what you know and how I'd be able to tell it wasn't yours because of that. Um, instead of, you know, forsaking computers in my class, making everything done by hand instead, which is ridiculous in this right. day and age. I don't really think that we can go back to doing everything by hand anymore. Right. I mean, you look at some of these and I've used it to like for my own model text, right? I love a good model to build from. And so I'll put something in and kind of like I was writing a report the other day and I was like, what would chat GPT do? So I put it in and I'm like, it's basic, but like I could take some of these ideas and the formatting, I can add some anecdotes, but to your point about voice, it is a, it could be a starter, but at mm-hmm. least we need to know that it exists. And I think it's kind of like when Siri and all of these, you know, things came out, my kids learned how to ask better questions because they were asking Siri for, you know, for answers. And the better their questions were, the better information they got. And yeah. teaching our our learners, ourselves also, how to leverage the technology and bring our own voice, our own anecdotes to like to use it, I think is really powerful rather than saying, block it, you can't, I'm going to spend all my energy trying to make sure it doesn't come in my classroom. Right. Well, I mean, I think there'll still be people who do that. It's like the whole turn it in thing too. Like, (laughs) I, I think that there are really valuable lessons in all of this. And I think at the end of the day, since kids have access to all this information, there are different skills we, we need to be teaching kids at this point. And not that we need to abandon Um, everything from before, but we definitely need to be mindful of making sure that there's, there's appropriate shifts to what the world actually looks like right now, instead of saying, well, this is what kids need to know. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not really bought into the fact that a lot of the things we expect them to know are really that important anymore. Right. Um, To be better consumers of what's out there, to be able to identify things that are going to help them grow in ways that make sense for their future um, learning and careers and whatnot. Um, I think that that's far more important. So I think the new technology is really more problematic for the teachers than it is for the kids because they don't understand it. And I understand how scary that is because, you know, I spent years in the classroom with students who had greater knowledge of certain things than I did. And it took me a long time to invite it in instead of trying to shut it out because I couldn't be supportive um, if they were going to use those tools. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if, as most teachers will tell me, I just want to do what's right for my students. I want to do a good job. And that looks different than it did 
five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because the tools are changing more rapidly. So to your point, what they need doesn't mean abandoning everything, but it does mean critically looking at what are the things that I'm teaching that they need and where can I make space to go deeper, to have these conversations, to build the skills that they need. Yeah, I think it's so important to do curriculum audits on a regular basis anyway. And you should like, there's no reason to be using the same curriculum for like large chunks of time. I'm Again, I'm not saying throw it all out. I'm just saying revision should be intentionally made based on the learners who are in your class every single year yeah. and then continuing to do that along the way. Love it. And what you're learning. All right, so we're going to close up with our rapid fire of a few questions, um, just whatever comes to mind. Okay. So first one, what is one thing we should stop doing in education? Grading. Love it. What's one thing we should start doing? Empowering kids to be in control of what they're learning. Awesome. What it should we keep doing? We should keep building robust relationships with our students so we know them really well. Awesome. You mentioned earlier you're in the middle of writing a book. So maybe, so that might be, or there might be other things. What are you really focusing on or learning right now? Um, well, in my current role, I'm, I'm the COO of a company now. So I am always learning about business because that is not something I had to know before. Um, and the specific content that I'm really focused on is student-led conferences and portfolio work. So I've been working with districts to really develop robust systems where that could work in. So it's not just like one teacher randomly in a classroom doing something awesome by themselves, but really trying to help whole systems leverage um, these really authentic learning experiences for kids. So that's like it's really the the part that I'm super centered on right now, helping helping folks do that well. I love it. I always say um, in my teacher education program, I didn't really learn how to run an organization. It's awesome, but I am learning a lot all the time. All the time. Uh, all right. What is something that many people don't know about you? Um, that is my cat, by the way. Hello, Hux. He's, <laughs> um, what do people don't know about me? I am really, really, really introverted. Like I'm like painfully shy when I'm in public. Um, so for me to muster the energy to get in front of a, a crowd to speak or to lead a session in any way that um, it, it could, it used to be crippling. It's not as bad as it used to be. Like you mentioned my Ted talk earlier and my friend Jen almost had to throw me onto the stage when it was my turn to go. I was ready to back out like minutes before I was supposed to go on because I, I get very nervous. So <laughs> I'll remember that when I finally meet you in person and run up to give you a big hug. <laughs> oh, I'll take a big hug as long as, you know, we aren't among like 8,000 people who are there too. <laughs> Got it. Um, what are you grateful for right now? Oh, I'm so grateful for the people in my life and just the health of those around me. And um, I'm just, I'm, I feel very lucky to be a part of a growing mindset of people who are really making awesome changes in education. Pretty Same. lucky. About All right. That. Final thought. What is your hope for the future of education? Mm. I, I hope that 
we can actually change the system. Um, not And not to say that these pieces that we do within the system are bad steps toward that, but I think it's time for a complete rethinking. Um, and, and, you know, the, the metaphor of blowing it up isn't necessarily what I'm thinking, but I, I really do think it needs to, it needs to go in a different direction than it is right now. Yeah. Well, as we say at the Learner Center Collaborative, it will take all of us together to make that happen. We are committed um, on the journey together. I am so, so grateful, Star, for the time to finally get to connect with you. And I look forward to many more conversations. Me too. So you. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the Learner Center Collaborative Podcast. To learn more about us, head on over to www.learnercenter.org or send us an email at collaborate@learnercenter.org. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag LCCPodcast. Our ending credit music was written and composed by Maddie Hansen, a student at Lambert High School in Cumming, Georgia. Our podcast was produced and edited by Nisha Lakiani. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.